If you liked hearing Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson provide secrets on negotiating for total compensation, dealing with microaggressions, or simply being able to just be your authentic self, then welcome to season two of Secrets. Are you one of the only on your job? Do you wonder why the same type of people continue getting promotions? Have you dreamed of getting to the top but don't know how? Welcome to Secrets Season 2, a podcast devoted to showcasing dilemmas faced by underrepresented employees in their quest to climb the career ladder. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have experienced the corporate grind for more than 20 years. Now they want to share their adventures, pitfalls, and C-suite secrets that they've learned along the way. So let's fill up those cups and get started. Here are your hosts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secrets. Ricky, what, how you doing, my friend? Man, I am hanging in there, hanging in there. I'm excited, man. Uh, we got a big, big month. I mean, March is the birthday month, number one. Oh, there you, you know, go. Yeah, That's so right. You're the black leprechaun. Exactly. Great things happen in March, right? But speaking of March, though, March is Women's History Month. And we are going to center voices on diverse group of women on our episode this month. I am excited about this. Yeah, this is going to be crazy. So this month, we'll showcase a variety of viewpoints on allyship and how workplaces need to change. And over the next few weeks, we're going to have Teresa Robinson, Elaine Brown, the leader of the Black Panthers, Amber Cabral on the podcast, all of them dropping hot fire. And if you don't know who they are, get your popcorn ready. We are going to kick things off today with an interview with our friend Dorit Sipis. So we'll introduce her in just a little bit. But all I can say is never judge a book by its cover. Right. Because she is going to be dropping some gems today. She is. She is. I'm I'm looking forward to this. In today's episode. We'll talk about the definitions of white fragility and systemic racism and white privilege because it's going to come up when we're talking with Dorit. We'll also hear from Dorit on transformational whiteness and what that means. And as always, we'll bring you those receipts and we'll close out with two secrets from Dorit on how white allies can help move the needle forward. So now as we're kind of setting the stage here, I mean, as soon as you hear the terms white fragility, systemic racism, white privilege. They're like, oh, Lord. There these, you go. These Make brothers, those little hair. <laughs> exactly. These brothers is going at it again, man. They're yes. talking about the system. They're over here trying to overthrow something or whatever, right? But it's really not even like that. So what we wanted to do is just try to take just a few minutes just to break down, not to insult anyone's intelligence. Absolutely. Okay, but to break down three of the defining terms here as we're kind of setting the stage for what's to come, right? So we're going to start out with white fragility. Now, as BIPOC people, we may have all experienced or sensed this in white people that we are familiar with. Like the actual phrase was coined by Robin DiAngelo in 2011 in terms of white fragility. Mm -hmm. It is defined as a defensive response by a white person when their whiteness is highlighted or mentioned or their racial worldview is challenged, whether their response is conscious or otherwise. Oh, yeah. We've seen this on full display. But, you know, again, it's, you almost get desensitized 
yeah, to it because you see it because right. because you see it all the time. But again, this is the fragile nature yeah. of it. As soon as you say something, mm-hmm. you They're know, just like, uh, yeah, oh. exactly. Being too aggressive. That's right. You know, That's me. right. Stop. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. The second term that we wanted to define just to for the context of this conversation is systemic racism, which is also called institutional racism and is a form of racism that is embedded or widespread policy or practice that's entrenched basically within society, institutions, organizations, and systems. And I think especially as underrepresented employees, you feel this all the time because the system was built on a structure that uplifted one type of person. And kept others in their place. And kept others in their place. I mean, we're talking about glass ceilings and Asian community. They speak to the bamboo ceiling. That's I mean, right. All of these That's things. That's right. The pink ceiling in the LGBTQ yeah. community. All of these things were put in place. This system. The system. You know, the systemic issue here. The next one is white privilege. Now, look, societal privilege that benefits white people over non-white people under the same social political or economic circumstances according to amber cabral again the sister's gonna be on the show yes she okay is. but according to amber cabral in her recent book she defines it as privileges are rights advantages or protections granted to or accessible by a particular person or group of people whether earned or not yeah it's the privilege. It's the privilege. <laughs> it's the privilege. That's right. And I know that term, like white privilege, is like a trigger for a lot of people. It really is. Where they just kind of shut down mm-hmm. or just like, oh, this is reverse racism or whatever the case may be. It just, it's a trigger. But we have to realize as we think about white fragility and systemic racism and white privilege, I think it's really important for us to understand that we all have privilege in some way, right? However, white privilege stands out in particular because it's the standard against which everything in American culture is compared against, right? The way we talk, the way we look, the way we behave, the way we live, work, play, all of that is held to a standard of whiteness. That's considered what is right at the end of the day. And that's what we have to deal with when we're talking about white privilege. Right. And again, this is not a negative. This is a bit yeah. of an education piece here to set context. Absolutely. Right? As you're you know, speaking about that antidote, you know, there. Right. I'm also thinking about like in previous episodes, we've mentioned various systemic issues, even on some of our blogs. You know, yeah. we've written um, yep. about those. But systemic issues that are the result of like the redlining with respect to education and housing. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you know how I feel about that. Absolutely. We've also mentioned opportunities that someone may receive based on their socioeconomic class. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. it happens. We've experienced some of that, whether it be with being an athlete, being, you know, living in your community right. or whatever yeah. the case is, we've, we've, experienced, we've experienced it. You know, we've experienced some of those things, right? In my professional career, on more times than I can actually remember, okay, I have seen people get opportunities for internships or entry-level positions within organizations because they have the privilege of being acquainted through elite club affiliations. Oh, yeah. Whether that be golf, tennis, lacrosse. Lacrosse. (laughs) I know black people don't know what lacrosse is. (laughs) But but some of them do. Some of them do. Yeah, some of them do. do. 
But even if you're one of the few who does know, right, you still may not get all of the opportunities afforded to the other. That's true. You know, people, that right? True. Like my uh, grandfather used to say, sometimes it pays to have the the complexion for the connection. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know? that's so right. that's exactly what it is, right? So, but through this privileged relationship, the individual then has the opportunity to leverage those relationships. And now grow their careers. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Once again, this is a head start. People who are not afforded the same privileges are now starting from a deficient place in the process. Absolutely. So again, here we go. If you spotted Usain Bolt 10 feet. Right. Do you think you could catch up to him or even beat him or even be competitive? There's no chance. There's no chance. He only needs one step. He don't need 10 feet. He needs one step. Right. But again, although we're joking about it, this is what it's like when you have like that privilege that we speak about. When you have something afforded to you, whether you earned it or not. Whether you got it or not. That's right. But it comes. And that's the thing that we just want to want to center today. And as we mentioned at the beginning, we have a hot fire guest for you today, Dorit Sippis. And she has a perspective that we all need to hear. So, Ricky, why don't you introduce Dorit to our listeners? Man, all I can say is so Dorit Sippis is an artist, an educator, a mediator. I mean, she's really like a, a renaissance woman. Yes, like, I mean, you, you know, we, we joke around about this stuff. But when you see what she's involved with, you'll understand exactly where, where we're going here. So her work, which explores themes of history, identity and social relations, has been presented in diverse cultural contexts across the U.S. and internationally since the 80s. So she's been at it for a long time. She's not new to the game, man. So she's also taught on identity and social relations at numerous colleges and universities internationally and has represented her diversity plus differences, skills training and uh, conflict engagement programs to uh, civic, cultural and educational groups worldwide. So, I mean, she's in the game. Yeah, she's, she's real the deal. real deal. Right. So but her essays on identity social relations and conflict have appeared in journals and books on art and mediation. Here is an excerpt from our interview with Dorit. Buckle up. Buckle up. My mother had six passports and spoke seven languages. My father was born the eve of the First World War in a cellar while there was bombing overhead. Ran for three years during the beginning of the Second World War while his family was kept and murdered and escaped via Turkey to Palestine. So I I was raised in a crazy upside down world in the very beginning of the state of Israel, which was total chaos and filled with nightmares and horror of where those people were coming from. No idea that they were taking other people's lands. So I started without awareness and my family moved to Montreal, Canada. I largely grew up, I went to school, you know, public school in Protestant school board because the Jews were not permitted into the Catholic school board. And the divisions in Montreal were based on Protestant and Catholic and Jews were a third other. It was only when I came to the States at the age of 25 to study, I was studying art in California that I, I went, oh my God, identity here is black and white. What is that? <laughs> I, never, I didn't know what that was, you know, because it was always 
Jew or not Jew, <laughs> you know, like where do I, you know, the fitting in of the kind of the invisible other, even though I'm I'm white appearing, it's like this otherness that doesn't get quantified. And in the United States, it was, whoa, something's really wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have my my view of it is, of course, I'm immersed and I'm involved, and I have all the privilege of whiteness. I get that completely. It's like Lady Macbeth. It's like she keeps going, and you know, Shakespeare, out, out, damn spot get that whiteness out, like, stop. I don't want to be part of that, you know, that power system. I don't want it. But here I am kind of colonized by it too. And so victim, victimizer, we're all sort of caught in this blind situation. And I, in my work, want to reach those people who live with whiteness, who have the wherewithal to wake up Hmm. and ask some really deep internal questions of themselves as well as the system that that keeps us blinded. Just very curious. There's a lot of terms out there, a lot of theories, a lot of work that's out there. I'm just very curious about your your feelings around this concept around white fragility. (laughs) And how does that ring with you? How do you think about that? I'm really attentive to language because language represents too, just like images and symbols. So the term anti-whiteness I don't use. When you use the word anti, it creates an an adversarial energy like this opposed to that. So when I push against you, you have the right to push against me. So if I want to change that energy, if I don't want to continue the energy of oppositional relations, I need to bring my hands down around and hold you so that you meet me and drop, we drop into each other. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to maybe rephrase the word, the term anti-whiteness. I'm not anti-anything. I want to transform it. I want to take it apart and let it melt. I don't want to kill it because then it's going to hit me back and kill me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yes, that's great. So I want it to melt, really. White fragility, it's like I read that book. You know, last year, I I read a ton of books when I was putting together my own curriculum, the book called White Fragility, which is like the number one handbook of what it means to be white. And I'll tell you what I don't like about it. Again, it sets up a fixed language and it sets up the potential for people to go down the list of things I'm not supposed to be and check them off. Okay, got that check, got that check, got that check, got that check. Good, I'm not fragile anymore. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yes. That's not it. Fragility simply means to me, I'll translate it for myself, is the fear of being vulnerable, Mm. is the fear of uncertainty. It's the fear of realizing hey, we actually don't really know what it means to be white because white has never been racialized like every other race. Mm -hmm. It's the only race that has not been racialized because it created the ground rules of racism. So fragility is simply the fear of being racialized ourselves. And to be racialized ourselves means we have to look at ourselves as white. And we can't let that go. We can't let go of the isms of race isms until we racialize white folks for the purpose of having white folks recognize what it feels like to be in a category 
that's bound, maintained, and constricted. When white folks recognize what that feels like, then we could start letting go of whiteness and therefore of racism and therefore of blackness. You know, we will be humans mm -hmm. with each other and we will put out the identity we want to put out rather than fit into these boxes. So white fragility is a worry about using the term because it's become like a fixed meaning. You know, I prefer to use more language and say, and ask questions like I do. I ask a lot of elicitive questions. I try to pull things out of people with tiny questions. I don't want big answers. I want little answers for people to start to recognize themselves. How am I thinking? How do I feel about him asking me that? Well, wait a minute. Why am I not saying what I'm thinking right now? Oh my God, I actually don't know what to say. My work is very transform. Is I say it's transformational work. It's not A plus B equals C. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like on the surface. It, people have it's very self-reflexive. It's reflection-oriented. So, as I'm thinking about, like, okay, so first off, let me pause real quick and make a statement just to our listeners. Do y'all see why we have this woman on the show <laughs> <laughs> right now? Doreen is over here dropping science, man. She is over here dropping science. Do you have like any specific direction or recommendations for white people who? want to become or be better allies and advocates for like their BIPOC colleagues. Yeah. You're both raising really complex questions. We could talk all day, right? Yeah. And, and we're going to keep up. We're going to keep talking. <laughs> now people say to me, how long is it going to take? I say 40 years and 40 nights. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hold everything like the frame I hold is very, because it's transformational, it's optimistic. It's positive. And I say to white folks, I say, you know, you're being held hostage too. Your soul is held hostage all these centuries. You're raised, you, we are raised to be super competitive, super comfortable, super on, you know, smart, super on guard, super successful, super knowledgeable, conscious, aware, certain. And it's all a lie because no one, no human being can be certain and fully aware and conscious and okay all the time. It's okay not to be okay. And white folks are not allowed to be not okay. And so you are losing by holding on unconsciously to this rubric of whiteness. To have that privilege, which is an economic privilege, it's a privilege of resources, and accessibility and, and visibility and you know your reputation is seen it's like acknowledged you're paying a price for that it's like a faustian contract with the devil <laughs> we lose our soul in order to think we are gaining on the other side but we are not fully human we are not fully soulful. We are not fully in our bodies. We're not allowed to really feel the world in a deeply sensorial, sensate place of ourselves. That's like considered weak or not substantial or too soft. So we're not in our bodies. Hell, I don't want to live my life not in my body. That's ridiculous, <laughs> right? So I start from that place of, there's a lot to be learned and gained. And in the gaining, 
you have to give up a myth, a myth that you're not safe, a myth that you're going to lose everything, a myth that no, when we give in a generous and reciprocal way to all, we all gain. So I have a very kind of humanistic point of view. And it's interesting. It's like, if COVID hasn't taught us that one person is sick is all people sick, you can't get away. And of course, there's white folks and other folks who think they can get away. Like, no, I won't get it. It's not about <laughs> yeah. me. It's about right. people getting it. That, that's ridiculous. We know how ridiculous that is. Right. So it's not just COVID. It's everything. Everything we do is cross-human, is interstitially between our energies. You know, we create the world between us not in boxes that we possess, which is having taken that perspective, we're destroying the planet. We're destroying the ecology. We're destroying the environment. We're destroying our resources. That's all based on on the principle of ownership and possession and profit. Yeah. Man, I mean, we told you, we told you that Dorita had some gems. I mean, Every time I listen to that, I get excited about it. She will share some secrets later in the episode. But as I listen to Dorit, the impact for me was absolutely clear. There's a large number of white leaders in this power construct who have not done the necessary work to this point to change our current paradigm as it relates to eradicating whiteness as a racial construct, as we said they have not put in the work. They haven't put in the work. That's right. And that takes a lot of self-reflection, which she talked about a lot. Right. You got to do that work. Reality is people don't really want to do that. They don't, work. It's no, hard. It's nobody hard. really wants That's to look hard. in the mirror and feel like I'm not doing things right, you know, or I need to really change the way I see things. Absolutely. And that's kind of the moral to the story when you think about it. That introspection and reflection by white people is key to transforming America and its workplaces at the end of the day. You know, this is going to be key for us as we start thinking through this, right? As we, you know, we come to these receipts, right? So let me summarize the receipts, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, for us today. So we're going to share some stats on the ROI on diverse workplaces. We will also speak to a few examples of when companies are not successful with embracing diversity. Mm -hmm. Then we'll describe how some best in class organizations are displaying good diversity practices in the workplace. Yeah. So Keith, let's get started, man. What's receipt number one? Here we go. Receipt number one. So, McKinsey, who's a very well-renowned consulting firm, so they've shown that companies in the top quartile for women's representation on executive committees report an average return on investment of 22% versus an average ROI of 15% for companies that don't have that level of representation. So having women on your executive committees in those top leadership roles changes your growth trajectory in the bottom line at the end of the day. Similarly, the World Economic Forum reports that helping women start their own businesses could immediately increase economic input by as much as $5 trillion. Now, look, man, I ain't never seen $5 trillion. None of us have. (laughs) I mean, we talking about $1.9 for a COVID relief bill. (laughs) Right. Trying to get a little extra change. But, you know, we're joking about things, right? right. But the ROI is no joke. The ROI is no joke. This is real business. Seven points is a lot of dope. And we're saying all 
not simplifying it, but we're asking our majority construct leaders here to do some self-introspection and we're asking them just to do the right thing. Just do the right thing. So we, we all win. We all win. Everybody wins. <laughs> Add a few women. And then we didn't even talk about adding black people or, or anybody yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. And it increases even more. So receipt number two for me. Now, this is, I, I need everybody just to bear with me because I'm. Uh, this is almost like a Jedi mind trick I'm about to pull on you, right? <laughs> so receipt number two, in an article published in Inc. recently that spoke about diversity representation it displayed some best-in-class tech companies, right? So let me share some of the information with you. So Facebook, the percentage of women in the company globally is 35%, with the number of women in tech at 19% and 28% in management overall. Mm. However, Hispanics are 5%, while blacks are 3%. Mm. Okay. But wait, it gets worse. Okay. <laughs> so Google is 69% male overall with the U.S. employees, including 2% black and 4% Latino. Wow. Okay. It gets worse. <laughs> Two thirds of managers at Amazon in the U.S. are uh, white and globally 75% are male. Overall, the company is 61% male. In this country, blacks represent 21% of employees, but only 5% of management. Hmm. Go figure. Mm. Again, we're just, mm. I'm not making this stuff this up. This is just data. Yeah, yeah. These I'm not receipts, baby. You, you follow the data, right? Okay. A few more over here. Just bear with me because I'm going to bring this home. LinkedIn is 42% female overall, but women make up 21% of technical positions and are 38% of leadership. In the U.S., 61% of employees are white, 31% Asian, 4% Latino, and 1% black. This is at tech first. This is at LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Globally, Microsoft. Okay, let's speak to Microsoft here. Is 25.9, like almost, say, let's call it 26% female. Tech is 19%, while leadership is 191 in the U.S., whites are 56.2%, Asians 31%, Latinos 5.9%, Blacks 4%. So we're talking like less than 5% in some of these organizations. Now, crazy. the kicker is, now here's the Jedi mind trick. So such patterns were consistent at Salesforce and some other mm. reputable mm-hmm. organizations. The irony is, okay, and you guys, I'm not telling you anything i'm not tricking you but your mind will probably trick you when i tell you the irony in these numbers are that all of these companies were considered among the best organizations for diversity that's crazy the bar is low the bar is low the (laughs) The bar bar is low low. i'm about to have a sip of my cocktail for one but you can also see why jesse jackson is in that ass right now trying to get these tech companies to do the right thing because they're the future. But, you know, all they got to do is stall them out like they're doing. And everybody thinks he's crazy. That's right. You know, or when you say it's not enough diversity around here or how come we don't have at the executive you know, level black people or it, it really ain't that hard. It ain't that hard. Just do it. But with the data, the data doesn't lie. The data don't lie. And these guys have been trying to be transparent for the last five or six years and ain't nothing changed. <laughs> Even when they put it out there, ain't nothing changed. 
So, Ricky, I found receipt, receipt number three. I'll be a little bit more positive as much as I can. But for the past 20 years, Diversity Inc. has released its list of the uh, top 50 companies for diversity. And in uh, 2012, it started a list of Hall of Fame companies that year in and year out demonstrate a commitment to diversity above the rest. Those Hall of Fame companies include AT&T, Johnson Johnson, Ernst & Young, Kaiser Permanente, Novartis, Sodexo, and PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC. Again, it's not to say that these companies are perfect and don't have issues, but at least they've shown a consistent commitment to creating a diverse workforce. And that's really the important piece of this is that they're doing the work or trying to do the work to make a difference. So when we say Fortune 100, when we say Fortune 500, I mean, that's how many organizations right? that make the majority or the bulk of the money as these organizations. And we're talking about 50 companies that are in this Hall of Fame, basically, right? So when we say we don't know what to do or this, you can benchmark these companies, yeah, right? Yeah, these yeah, are companies yeah. that, are, that are doing it. Now, he's trying. They may not be doing it right, but the data don't lie. The data says it. That's right. <laughs> data don't lie. That's so right. look, I mean, again, I appreciate us being able to pull some of those receipts out so that people, you don't have to take my word That's for right. it. That's right. You don't right. have to take my word That's for right. it, but just look at the receipts, right? But here, but what, what we want to be able to do is get to those secrets, yes. right? We want to yes. absolutely get to those secrets today. And as Keith said earlier, we're going to need you to go ahead and get your pen and your paper route, yeah. right? Because Dorit is going to share two secrets that you do not want to miss. So Absolutely. listen up. We'll play those for you right now. What final parting words or secrets would you provide to our listeners on how to deal with the structural inequities, racism in their organizations, or even like the transformational whiteness, you know, that we talked about. Is there anything that you'd like to maybe leave our listeners with? And this is that part that we call the secrets, you know, here, but we'd like to hear from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I want to put my hand into a basket of fortune cookies and just pull one out, pull right? One out. Yeah. That's good. We'll take it. I mean, the large picture is this is old. I mean, this is from the way before the Constitution. You're wearing your hat, 1619. This is 1619, the beginning of enslavement. But it goes back before that, too, because this country was created through the genocide of Native peoples. Mm -hmm. And it goes back before then because slavery existed all over the world, the traveled world, for centuries before 1619. Bodies were being traded left and right by empires who were conquering other countries and trading their peoples. And there were Arab-bodied peoples, there were Black-bodied peoples, and there were White-bodied peoples. And it was the Portuguese in the 14-somethings that decided to put a premium on Black bodies because they saw, they thought that Black bodies were stronger than other bodies so we could get a bigger price for Black bodies and started this kind of hierarchy of profit making over bodies and like what you get for what you pay. So that happened 200 years before 1619 and allowed for 1619. Like we only want black bodies to be enslaved in our country, right? 
So I want to tell white people that this is ancient. We didn't create it, those of us living today, but we are responsible for continuing it if we don't stop and pay attention and ask tiny questions of ourselves. What am I missing here? Doreen, I'm telling you, Doreen, 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 you are dropping science, man. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's great. <laughs> you guys are such an amazing audience. No one ever says that about me. <laughs> you ain't been talking to us. You ain't been talking to us. That's right. That's right. I'm telling you, this is why we was excited. See, because I think... Part of why I think our spirits have connected is because we're not afraid to be honest and to call out the BS. Right. I have this um, one tool I, I call tree, T-R-E-E. I love trees. I love trees. Trees are the <laughs> best teachers, you know. We think we know a tree when we see a tree. We only see half a tree. The other half is underground. It's the roots. And it is major and complex. We can't see it. We don't know it. We don't know the history. We don't know where that tree is coming from. We don't know who that tree is connected to. It's same as humans. So I took the word T-R-E-E. There are four principles of transformative behavior that, you, that one needs to learn. The first is transparency for T. And transparency, I meant, is not just send the email to everybody but make sure that everybody understands your email. So write that email from the perspective of the receiver, not just checking off all of the points you wanna get across. Like who's receiving this? Are they speak English? Do they understand the terminology you're using? Do they even have access to internet? So T for transparency, R for reciprocity. And reciprocity doesn't mean I need to give exactly what I get. It means I need to understand what I got and I need to understand the person that gave it to me and recognize what is it that they can use in return and give them from the place of my understanding of their need, not just a replication of what I received. So it's very relational, right? And then there's E for equity. Equity's so important and so complex because equity again means you need to really look at the person you're engaged with and understand they are living within a context that may be very unique to them and very different from yours. And that their set of resources and their access to resources may be very different than yours. So how are you gonna create equity between you and them? Is to understand the context and the resources available to all the parties you create equity from that understanding. How do you meet the needs, right? And then the last E is the most important and it's the goal, empathy. And you can't reach empathy without equity and reciprocity and transparency. And all of those really have to grow. Like if, the, if this is the tree, I'm sharing my fingers <laughs> and the roots are down here, <laughs> you can't see them, <laughs> right? <laughs> So you can't get there without getting there. And there is interior, is yourself. Foundation. Yep, that foundation. It's in yourself, in yourself. Know your roots in order to understand how you're reaching out and how you show up in the world and who others are. Empathy comes from 
an understanding of your own otherness, of your own differences, of making peace with your own blind spots, standing up and being advocate for your own uh, non-capacities. When you can love that part of yourself, you can reach out and love everybody. Man, Dorit, girl, look, these some hot gems over here, man. This is like you are spitting lava. <laughs> you know oh, what I'm saying? I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> look, we told you, we told you, we told you, we told you that Dorit was going to bring some heat. We actually spent a lot more time with her. So if you want to hear the full interview, and I'm telling you, it was ridiculous. If you want to hear the full interview, please check it out on Patreon. What we're trying to do is make sure that we get those available to you so you'll hear the the full uncut version on Patreon. Yeah, absolutely. And Dorit brought the heat. And again, that interview, we went for almost an hour. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. But as we wrap up here, we definitely want to show some appreciation for all of our listeners out there. You guys are keeping us strong, helping us move forward, giving us great ideas for the podcast. And we really, really appreciate your support. But also, if you want to connect with Dorit or learn more about the topics that she spoke about and we've been speaking about today, be sure to check out our show notes for this episode, which is available on our website. There's lots of resources there that we reference that you can use and read and dig more deeper into those topics that we talked about today. And look, and if you also like what we're um, giving to you, I mean, look, we see the LinkedIn transformation group growing. We also see our our list of connections Mm -hmm. on uh, LinkedIn growing. We got emails coming in left and right. But if you like what's happening, just help the brothers out, right? Like us on uh, Apple Podcasts and write a review. That's how the algorithm works. You know, join our new uh, Secrets uh, Transformation Group on LinkedIn. Consider buying some merchandise or, or even trying our coaching service. I mean, we I've been sp- getting some pictures of people sporting their secrets gear. You know me, I'm, I'm always secrets down from head to toe. Absolutely. Here. Absolutely. And that's how we spend our weekends when we're not recording. We're coaching. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So take advantage of those coaching services. And as we were alluding to earlier, Become a Secrets Patron on Patreon. Going forward, you will receive exclusive access to our full interviews with guests, early releases of podcast episodes, giveaways, and live interactions with uh, myself and Keith and some of our other special guests as well. Absolutely. So sign up. And as we sign off here, the region shown us how to transform whiteness but we're about to transform these empty cups into a new cocktail. (laughs) So thanks for joining us today on Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. So until next time, peace. Take care, everybody. Thank you all for listening today. Hopefully you gained a secret or two that can be applied as your journey continues. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, and donate via Patreon. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Don't forget to tune in next time for more Hot Fire. Until then, cheers! Cheers!